This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. Show me a CEO today that gets done what they need to do without happy developers. Like, you just can't find that, right? No chance. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Chris, a warm welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. You're the co-founder and CSO slash CCO at Netlify, a platform for building highly performant and dynamic websites, e-commerce stores, and apps. Before we talk about that impressive story and how you actually built a unicorn company, I want to focus on your personal background. You studied film and media science at the University of Copenhagen. That's not the most usual background for an entrepreneur, right? So why did you choose to study it and how did it prepare you for the career you ended up having? Yeah, uh, good question. It's not a very straight line. Um... I um, I did study film and media science. Uh, before that, I, I you know had worked a little bit you know after high school, just setting up office networks, building people's computers, um, and then I sort of fell into film editing, and I was doing that always in advertising world. And I wanted to to study again, and I studied film and media science. And I think my overlay that has followed me through my career is has always been storytelling, right? And and so I think that has many aspects to it but this idea of creating a narrative around what you do and it also helps sort of figuring out uh what's the category what's the market play and and how do you position the the features and benefits and virtues of of, of using a product and so on right so so yeah i um i studied film and media science yeah still uh still a, a big film buff but uh but of course i, I went a little different way after that I, I love this red line of telling the story because that's so crucial, whether you're fundraising, whether you're doing sales or hiring the right employees. Was that then a conscious decision from your side where you said, hey, I don't want to tell stories in film or media. I actually want to tell stories in business. When was that moment when you said, this is my way forward? How, how did that happen? Well, it was gradual, right? So my, okay. my film work was always, always around advertisement and so on, right? And then I, I went to... Um, um, while I was studying, I started a hybrid production company, which was when flash and video was a thing. So basically, you know, flash started, you know, was a graphic standard and animation standard for the web, yep. right? And and it supported semi-transparent alpha channels. So you can actually, you know, create these video elements embedded into websites. And um, and it wasn't happening in Denmark. I should say I'm, I'm originally, uh, today I live in Silicon Valley in, uh, in San Francisco, but originally from Copenhagen, Denmark. And, um, and you know, it was happening elsewhere, but not in Denmark. And I had a friend who came from the flash animation and I came somewhat more from film, right? And we decided to, you know, let's do an agency that does that. 
And uh, we were lucky because the whole category exploded and we were the only game in town. So we did a lot of bells and whistles and, and ended up with a, a, a large number of the largest agencies and companies as, as, as clients. Um, so it was a web agency, but that very much focused on, on you know, film productions used for the web. Um, Got it. And, but interactive videos, video mm -hmm. storytelling, I would say, right? And then um, after a number of years, I felt like I wanted to do something that didn't just, you know, try to go for winning awards, right? But really had a, an impact. I wanted to get into the process of what should we be doing in order to push a message across or, or whatever it might be a little earlier. And so I sold it to a full service agency. And as part of that merger, I became the chief digital officer. Mm -hmm. And that's when sort of, it had, you know, film became a little less present. Of course, Flash took a bit of a nosedive, nose right? And let's be honest, right? You know, it's a bit of a performance issue <laughs> and security issues with it and so on, right? But um, at that point, I had, had sort of exited, right? And um, and then I started doing a lot more uh, uh, sales and, and overseeing all kinds of digital productions, right? Did a little bit of film, but very quickly just became digital only. Um, and then I did that for a number of years. Um, until uh, my very good friend from high school, who's now my co-founder, sort of reached out and, and he was in um, Silicon Valley in San Francisco already with another startup. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he was building this proprietary CMS, like a fully hosted alternative to something like WordPress. And saw that, hey, the premise for you know, creating business, uh, doing business online was changing, right? At least what I thought was the premise, which was that you sort of have to, of course you have a server, right? And of course you, you, the security concerns and so on are a shame, but, but they are what they are, right? And then he was saying, hey, you know, there's a lot of change and I actually think that we can, uh, you know, build with an entirely different architecture where you decouple the web experience from, from all the business logic. It's, it's essentially decoupling building from hosting, decoupling uh, front-end from back-end. And, um, and we started talking more and more about that because he had he's the technologist, right? And he had a great mm -hmm. vision around this, right? And I sort of said, okay, well, what's the category play? What will our go-to-market look like? How would this look like? Oh, it wasn't ours yet, right? We were just two friends uh, hashing it out, right? But ended up realizing that we had very sort of complementary skill sets. And um, and it was just an adventure that would be hard to say no to. I came over and visited a few times here in, in, uh, in San Francisco, right? And went up to wine country and... Sat there drinking, you know, nice wine in Sonoma, looking over the the vineyards, and he was saying, like, why don't we, why don't we make it go for it together? And, Sounds like uh, an easy sell. Yeah, exactly right. And so, I did a bunch of due diligence in my end because I was the taker of this, right? I mean, we were creating mm -hmm. a ton of web properties and apps and uh, and all kinds of, of things, right? And so, so I had the opportunity of sort of really feeling out product fit and category fit and what was missing and so on. And we sort of isolated that there was a better way to build for the web, which was this decoupling, which led to much faster sites, which was necessary, much uh, more secure sites, much more uh, scalable uh, properties, right? And, and, and But also much more compatible with modern workflows that were already happening, mm -hmm. like the use of Git, like anyone working in the web will be using Git for version control, right? And and um, and we sort of felt like, hey, if we if we wrap around this, what was needed was viable workflows. Once you no longer had big fat monolithic servers running, 
um, you needed to have a um, a better way of um, of um, of combining all those different parts, and that's sort of right. what Netlify. Uh, what Netlify was born out of was saying, "Hey, we need to create the developer experience around this new architecture." Mm -hmm. I wonder. You just mentioned you were two French from high school, basically, right? So mm -hmm. you had this idea, this vision, also about how the development, how the the architecture should look like. How do you validate this to then also, you know, take the leap of faith and say, hey, yeah. I'm going to de dedicate my time and actually build this thing. What what gave you the confidence to do so? Uh, uh, good question, right? So uh, Matt had already built out um, an MVP, which was a small dra drag and drop service where you can take your website folder, you know, drag it into the browser and it would essentially just populate it on a CDN. And we could see that the traction was coming from the right kind of people. Uh, so you also have to understand that if your end goal is to build something that will saturate all the enterprises in the world and so on, right? And 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 and, and it, you have to understand where it starts, right? And in our case, we're building and supporting a new standard, right? A new architecture. And so mm -hmm. for us, the right kinds of developers, doesn't matter if it's just for their own personal projects, right? But it's the right kind of developers that see value in building this way, right? And we saw traction coming from the right people. Um, and then part of the other part of it was that I could dog food this, right? So back in in, in Denmark, I could actually start start using some of these sites for with clients, right? And and um, and get their feedback and and you know the the the, the what they loved was the, just how easy it was. You're kidding me. I just dragged the folder and that's it. Like, is it live? Like, what about all the provisionings? What about, you know, building it out? What about the web server? It's like, well, look, you know, this is pre-rendered, it. right? It's just, yeah. we're done. And um, and then we looked at at um, at a lot of other trends, right? And, and some of those things you can sort of calculate a little bit, like the use of Git, right? Now, mm -hmm. well, that is version control, right? And it brought, you know, social coding and some new nomenclature and you were doing things. But if you dive a little deeper, what it really is is consistent layers of data. And the legacy web was sort of running on the fly. They weren't very compatible by default. And so it, it was fairly easy in that way to sort of envision that, hey, if you don't ask people to do anything differently, but instead of having to, you know, after someone pushed, download the code and build it out and upload it and make sure that it's the right version of Apache and your staging environment. So if you can just have them push and then nothing else, and then they get a, a finished URL on the other side, yeah. that's really powerful, right? And so, so yeah, um, some of it was just figuring, you know, taking a chance, right? Saying, hey, that just sounds like, like such an obvious win for everyone involved that it has to be the right thing. And some of it yeah. was 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 building it first and then trying it, and some of it was actually taking that early product and and trying to get some real life application out of it. So you also tested that with your agency clients in Denmark. You just mentioned before. When did you then make the decision to say, "Hey, I'm actually going to leave my agency and focus full time yeah. on Netlify"? Yeah, uh, yeah. Stop having a salary and move to the most expensive city in the world. And <laughs> yeah. sounds quite risky to me. <laughs> it was. I mean, of course, it was moonshot, right? But but it was also something that was quite appealing. I got to do something with my good friend and and um, something that that seemed to have promise. We already had that MVP. We sort of he carried that out of the old startup, right? So, so there was something already there. We weren't just starting with a whiteboard. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, 
it was a gradual decision somehow, and then it was a not so gradual decision, right? Then you sort of make the make the call, right? And and it's also a life decision. Something like that, you can't just. It's not just about you know product fit or, or whether you're convinced to whatever degree that a, an idea is, is viable and you can build a business around it. It's also like, do you want to move, right? Do you want to live away from the family? Sure. And, and uh, you know, at least your extended family, right? And um, and live in another country. And I think there was a lot of things that 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 played a role in the decision-making. Um, but yeah, I mean, sunny California, right? What's not so like? <laughs> But how do you then make that decision and also actually relocate from Denmark to the US? Because just thinking about the immigration laws, right? I mean, oh, yeah. that per se alone is already quite a, a tough challenge to solve, despite yeah. all the other things like being away from family, building yeah. a completely new network of friends and, and peers, etc. So how do you actually manage that relocation? Because it's much more than what you just see on the surface. Oh, yeah. I mean... Lawyers were involved, right? Like, you know, immigration lawyers. Um, it is true, like, also for taxation reasons and so on. I sort of just had to sell everything I had and move over here, right? And the and the visa process was, it is painful, right? And it does take years, right? I mean, we got the original uh, visa. It was an investor's visa. And then, at, with, you know, as things changed, because that was sort of an investment visa, based on us owning a certain percentage of the company and so on. And then you get investors, you dilute it, and then we move to a different visa and then another visa. And today we're in green cards, right? But it, 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 it's definitely a process and it will take time and resources, even if you have an immigration law and you're paying for it and you really have to want it, right? But it is sort of part of the price. I think what we really quickly realized, and I even spoke to a few VCs, right, was that the idea we had was about changing the architecture of how the web is built and providing a, a viable workflow around that and in, 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 in our business. And immediately we knew that this would have to be venture-backed. I mean, we would need to, mm -hmm. in order to make the the uh, kind of impact we wanted to and, and have the right time to market, we couldn't wait to earn the money before we spent it, right? So, um, and, and very quickly it became, this is like 2014, 2015, right, where we, very quickly realized that the approach to venture capital was just much more risk adverse in Europe. And what we were needing um, didn't fit the bill. I also think that Silicon Valley was even more of a hub and the density of talent and capital is still considerable right over here. But, but there was really sort of a, a question of it would be very hard to pull this off, this type of company under these types of circumstances in Denmark, right? And so there was, and, and, and lastly, my co-founder was already here and sort of dead set on, on staying here, right? And so I think, yeah, there was a number of reasons why we took the final jump and, and went for it, right? And uh, yeah. So that was a very clear decision for you then. I wonder, have you ever felt homesick or regretted that you moved to the US and left Denmark behind you? No, I think like, yeah, of course, our First of all, we were lucky, right? We, we we made a bet on an architecture that's now a tidal wave and changing. Like the web is most definitely changing, right? I mean, we're all collectively moving off monoliths to a place where the web experience layer is is separated from the business logic and it's happening at scale and it's happening in large enterprises. And, and I mean, at Netlify today, we have more than two and a half million developers and businesses on the platform, right? So 
so of course, like, you know, that big gamble to some extent paid off. I mean, we're still running, right? You know, and, and who can predict the future, right? So, right. so uh, but, but um, that obviously that helps, right? And it also helps that I can now have a salary, <laughs> you know, because there was a bit of a time limit on that, right? Um, and, um, uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, of course I miss family and friends, right? I'm lucky to also make new ones here, right? As you do in life, but... Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, go back to visit. Now we're internationalizing more and more, right? So we travel more and more. Also after COVID, now you know, spending more time in Europe and so on, right? Um, and so, but yeah, I think it's one of those things that it's hard to look to others for answers, right? Because you need to figure this out yourself. It's much more of a personal thing, like it's an emotional thing, right? Of of like you, you. Um, you want to do that? I mean, I, I moved over here without small kids, where it really is important uh, to have family around. I think to an even larger extent, but still, our daughter was seven when we moved. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there were definitely times, especially early on, where we were like, oh, it would have been nice to uh, to have family around, right? Um, yeah, I can imagine because we have such a high uh, quality of life in in Europe, right? So, it's sort of you you leave your comfort zone to a certain degree to uh, sell yeah. the untapped or uncertain waters of entrepreneurship in the US. Yeah, I think you leave your comfort zone when you become an entrepreneur rather than then, you know, um, uh, just having a job, I think, right? And and then when you make a move like this, even more so. But that's also I I believe that for me that's a good thing, right? I, I like that, right? I think that's how I I learn the most and and have the most fun. Absolutely. You also mentioned the two and a half million users and companies that you have on your platform. Mm-hmm. Who are your customers, actually? I saw you, you serve different segments according to your pricing plan, but mm-hmm. is there any such thing as the typical Netlify customer out there? Yeah, I mean, th- this is also why it's so interesting, right? It's because in the legacy world, you were building monoliths, right? And so everything was more locked in to a certain use case, right? Hey, I make a CMS and I need fine grace access control. I have a lot of enterprise stakeholders. Great. I'm going to end up catering large organizations, typically marketing organizations that have these needs. That's fine. That's a great business. But because the web experience layer is decoupled, Netlify has such a wide range of applications. So we have clients that, you know, they might have, let's say they had fitness exercise equipment, right? And that has screens on them that can show video and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Then they have a .com, tons of enterprise stakeholders, integrates into Salesforce and a bunch of other things, right? You have the more one-off marketing sites, you have your developer documentation. And in the old world, by default, because the needs were so different, the business logic or the API, so whatever it is you needed on the back end would be so different. Um, they're very isolated, right? I mean, especially mm-hmm. like, hey, take an, an app on a bike and or, or fitness equipment, right? And and take uh, take a, um, a a dot com, right? With an e commerce, and usually that would be a, a DXP, you know, it could be Sitecore EM or something like that, right? And you can't think of anything that's more different. But the reality is that the web experience can be much more the same. You can reuse components and so on, right? And so we're seeing clients that are have both on Netlify, right? And so that's really interesting, right? That the, because one is a web app, right? And of course, it, like there's a bunch of things behind it that's very different, but that's not the part we're running, right? We're running the web experience. And and so um, 
that also goes for the, the customer segments. I would say what they have in common, if we're talking enterprises, is that they're more tech forward. There's a certain maturity. They understand uh, uh, the return on investment by by embracing what we in enterprise more call of, of a composable architecture. Um, they they start realizing that they need an orchestration layer. They need sort of a conduit of tying everything together, and then, then they come and they build with Netlify. Um, and um, and but it's not like you know, it's especially healthcare or finance or startups or something like that, right? We have all of them at scale, right? I think if you look, go to the largest incubators uh, and you look at their, uh, their portfolio of startups, right? I've hundreds of those, hundreds are, are, are on, on uh, using Netlify, right? But also you go to the Fortune 500 and you're going to see a very significant presence of, of that as well. And that's, I like that. I like the it's it's fun and it's and it's and it's um, as interesting to get to work so horizontally, rather than mm-hmm. just with a certain vertical. Right, that is because what we are representing is a is a developer workflow, a web workflow for how you build for anything you serve over HTTP, and that traverses your different kinds of properties. And that's also why it's so valuable to these organizations. Right, instead of having these silos, now you have a common workflow for. Um, for all kinds of different projects that were completely isolated before. That also means that the developers that were, you know, sort of attached to your AEM solution over here, well, no, they're working on a web layer now. They can also be working over here and over here and over here, right? And that gives you a very different flexibility, which again also means that that you, many clients at larger scale, we, we sit and work with change management, right? Because, hey, mm-hmm. this this actually means that we get to, to put together our organization in a quite different manner. And so I like that it's very broad. There's tons of different types of clients and really, really different, right? And we have, look at Twilio. I mean, it's a $60 billion market cap, I think, something like that, right? The market's a little fluctuating right now, right? But, right, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but, you know, when you log in, that's on Netlify. I mean, the web console is a Netlify application, and, and they're also using wow. that for, for, for us for, for a bunch of other things now. And, and, um, and that's fantastic to see, right? But you also have Spring that migrated 6.5 million commerce storefronts to Netlify. Completely different use case. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's fun, right? And then still, it's, it, it, it's so important for us to always have that, the magic be so simple so someone can come in and click a button and 30 seconds later they have their their their, their site live right so, yeah, so this idea that it starts with developers giving them a magic moment very quickly but then can scale to to the largest and most complex sort of broad use cases for enterprise clients and, and it's, you know, it's fun having this this broad application you know setup basically that you can cover there can that also make it difficult for you to actually market your solution to then also sell it to the to the right people? Because it's so broad. You don't have, you know, a, a very specific focus where you say, this is the use case, this is the ideal target customer, et cetera. Because you can go so broad, is that also a challenge when it comes oh, yeah. to revenue or customer growth? I, I mean, it's a, it is a challenge, right? It's an inherent challenge. Um, also because when you work like this and these silos are sort of, you know, stop being so. What happens is that budgets sort of that clearly belong to this part of the company before. <laughs> now it's more yeah. sort of have more than one owner, right? Because there's more than one beneficiary of 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 of, of what you're selling, and so you have to go through the the mapping of what are the customer journeys, who's who's doing what. 
what's our initial uh, ICP, right? Um, and and target personas and and uh, yeah, you can't sell everything to everyone all the time, especially not in the beginning, at least, right? And so um, I think you 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 know that your application is white, but you also start somewhere. And then there's also what you're selling, right? I mean, um, we're selling wider workflows, right? For for, for 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 companies. So it's basically if you're building for the web, Netlify is relevant. Um, and um, and so I, I guess we could have started by saying, okay, let's take finance or let's take you know some sort of category and then just saturate that completely. But we're not an enterprise company that just goes and exclusively focus on this. What what happens is we get more than a hundred thousand new uh, users every month, right? And so that's a big freemium top of wow. funnel. And then, yeah. you know, they convert with time to self-service and then they convert into enterprise, right? So our clients are very much self-selecting uh, to a great extent. And so that also means that talking about a specific vertical becomes a little less, you know, a little more pointless, right? Because, right. well, we, we're speaking to the ones that are already here. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also wonder in, in that regard, how do you then filter between them where you want to put effort into it? You know, where you want to, you know, put them in touch with your sales force, for example, and where you keep them self-serviced or in the free trial or freemium model? Yeah, I think it's part art, part science, right? I mean, uh, how do you qualify your leads? <laughs> right. Every every SaaS company in the world will, will sit and and I mean, I, I guess we're all doing a bunch of the same things, but and, and and then some some that are sort of unique to our own companies, right? But but yeah, you you figure out what are the right triggers here, right? And and often something can be different, right? Sort of, hey, have they in, uh, expressed interest in you know a number of of webinars around certain topics? Uh, what does this usage indicate us? That's the first place we start, right? Like, hey, what 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 is what is that, right? And also try to automate it like try to build plans where they will move up against you know th there'll be certain places where well they'll reach out and they'll tell you that they're a lead spend, worth spending time on right um, you know enterprises that use you for real things to have procurement right they need uh, SLAs uh, they need you know 24-hour support and all those things and so that you know if they come on, on, on a platform and they're using us in, in a self-serve way They'll let us know, right? That right. hey, we 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 want to have a conversation about how we get some of those things, right? And so, to the extent you can, I think try to to build it in, in into the product and and and, uh, and and your pricing and so on. Um, so so there's as much self discovery as possible. Um, yeah, and then yeah, usage, uh, domains, saturation could also be like oh, now we have fifty uh, signups from the same domain at the same company, right? That can also mm -hmm. warrant that we should be reaching out and, and having a chat and seeing how we can help. Um, and then we do a ton of different content, right? And we are sort of really engaged in events and everything else, right? Um, to sort of really work that top of funnel, right? And and so we get a lot of signals for how people are engaging with us in, 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 in those aspects, right? Um, that, yeah, that also helps inform us of 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 who's 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 meaningful that we reach out to right and then we i mean it's i know it's a cliche but you know instead of always be selling then have the approach of always be helping 
right? I mean, if we come out and we reach out to someone and, and we also, I mean, we, we very much, because we have this first moves advantage and we've been doing it for so long and so on, right? We, we very much seen as sort of the solutions architects behind the, the, this migration to a composable architecture, right? Uh, not that we're the only ones, right? But, but, um, and uh, we spend a bunch of time helping like companies and, and developers and groups to, to, to talk about how they should be thinking about things and to helping out with technical things. Right. And, and, um, um, and I think that qualifies the relationship. So once they need to go bigger, then, then we're a trustworthy partner and someone that's, that's worth for them to invest their time and, and resources mm-hmm. in as well. Yeah, to me, what you just described, it goes very well along the way of how your product works. You put simplicity probably as one of the key values, make it easy to use, not only from a product perspective, but also when it comes to the sales process. Oh, yeah. So you can onboard yourself, you get all the information you need, and you know where to reach out to in case you need help or you want to get onto the enterprise plan. Yeah, exactly. It, in that regard, also a question, would you change anything? Now, looking back, would you uh-huh. want to focus on the enterprise plan only at the beginning, or would you still go for the freemium model and then do the upsells from there? Yeah, for us, there was no question, right? I mean, it's sort of like, if you think of GitHub, right? Uh, there was no GitHub without the use of Git, right? In the beginning, you sort of right. have to focus on qualifying that usage as well, right? And it was the same for us. We were bending everything on a market trend that simply didn't exist. So we needed to spend a ton of time qualifying that. And that doesn't happen within enterprises. That happens engaging with developers, right? Mm-hmm. With builders, with the community, um, with all the other early startups with two people in it, right? I mean, like, it is very much a grassroots movement and that's where it has to grow from. Um, and so I don't think that we would have a choice. Absolutely, we would, would do that again. And we're still doing it, right? Even though there's a lot of revenue coming from enterprise and um, and by the way, self-service is doing very well as well. But, um, but that type of funnel, like the ecosystem growth, right? Is still the most important thing we can do. Right. Um, And I also think it is a reflection of that we are collectively or large enterprises are buying in a different way. Gone are the Oracle days where you can just sell software over developers. Right. It's not a top down motion or it's a bottom up motion. Right. Developers uh, have incredible buying power and and they're at very least big influencers. Right. And I think, you know, our CEO said it like once once said that, uh, um, show me a CEO today that gets done what they need to do without happy developers. Like you just can't find that, right? No chance. Um, no <laughs> chance, right? And and it's sort of also a reflection of, if we, if we go a little more holistically, what I'm really seeing is that most business problems today, and I'm speaking really broadly, have digital solutions, right? And so when I speak to, to, to yeah, business owners, leaders, marketing leaders, and so on, what I see is that the biggest overall challenge, of course, there's a lot of different ones, right? But the, the ones that, that sort of come up the most is we need to reduce our time to market. And yeah. investing in developer tooling services as workflow is actually emerging as the number one primary way of reducing that time to market, right? So where before it became like whatever it works, they can choose whatever. We're not really, we don't invest in developer productivity. That's not a thing. We buy software. That's it, right? Right. It's now becoming sort of, oh, not only, not only should we consider it, but if we don't, we lose, right? So so I think like there's just in many ways, 
a big change, a big shift, right? And so, mm -hmm. so the whole bottom up versus top down in itself is changing. But yeah, the original answer to it remains the same. Like we would absolutely do it again, also because our business models very have been very dependent on growing the category, and that only right. happens by focusing on that sub of funnel and, and and having a very generous, large free tier. And talking about the business model, I also wonder how do you come up with your pricing? Is there any science behind it or was it also a lot of testing out trial and error to get to the stage where you are today no we figured it out up front and never changed the sense it was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah might have tweaked that once or twice or a thousand times pricing is hard man um it is it is it is it's difficult i think the first thing you have to realize when you do pricing and packaging is that it's always a compromise right and just Think of it this way, you'll never get it right. So just keep trying and keep fine tuning because um, otherwise it's just going to be sort of a, yeah, it's going to feel futile, right? Um, and and so, um, yeah, my advice around that or my learning around that is, is that, yeah, you, you have something until you change it, right? Be super careful around grandfathering and not moving the cheese too much. I think like if you, it's the same with building out services and then discontinuing them. And now you have a lot of people invested in them and building around them. And and I think those developers and those customers, they they don't forgive and forget, right? Uh, so I think you have to be very mindful of that. But I think pricing and packaging outside of that, keep experimenting, right? I mean, we we just did a, a big exercise ourselves uh, uh, with, a, with a consultancy that only does these kinds of things. Uh, that we're, I think we're just wrapping up right now, uh, if we haven't already. And so just to illustrate, this is year seven, right? It's a, it's a continuous learning process and it'll, it'll continue to be so. Also, just because what we offered on day one is so markedly different than what we <laughs> offer today, right? Today right. we have... Uh, Netlify Graph, which is a, like a single endpoint for all your different APIs. We have super advanced edge functions where you can even build like applications on the edge now, right? We have, of course, serverless. We have, you know, just such a broad portfolio, not portfolio products, but but such a broad platform, right? Um, and um, and so, so of course, uh, that changes your pricing and packaging. And then the market changes, right? The developer mm -hmm. habits change, right? And so... Uh, things that before sort of required a ton of bandwidth, maybe there's a smarter way of doing it now where you can just build it once or, or pull it in on demand rather than every time. And so and that, that also changes patterns dramatically. So all of a sudden bandwidth might not be a great indicator of the value deriving for it. So you have to change those units, right? And how right. you're charging for it in order to, to, to give sort of a fair exchange of value with the, with the user, right? And so, so yeah. Um, that was a long answer, but no, it's but great. It's so basically, for, for sales, right? For sales, what, when you say always be closing, for pricing, you say always be testing. I guess. Yep, I said yeah. I said instead of always be closing, then always be helping, right? Uh, and fair. I would say yeah, yeah with with um, with pricing as well. That's fair. Always be testing, right? It's it's a continuous journey. So despite the revenue growth, of course, you also had to manage the organizational growth, right? Yeah. So you had to hire more people, you had to change your ways of communication, etc. Mm -hmm. How did you manage that as a company? Because that's quite yeah, a significant challenge that can even break you from the inside, basically. So what are your learnings there on the organizational growth topic? Absolutely. And tons of them, right? I think you have to learn how to delegate. You also have to learn that, you know, um, I mean, 
there's just so many things that you learn along the way, right? We have Netlify is a very broad platform. We expand from local development to edge nodes, right? And um, and so there's a lot of different units in play when we talk building. And so we <laughs> didn't build our own building engine. We we said no, let's buy that, right? Yeah. And we got it wrong in the implementation of it. We should have built it up front. I mean, like <laughs> it was it was like there was a lot of learnings in that, right? And and also understanding something like, hey, we have great engineers, right? We're a mission to room company. We have attracted some of the best engineers in the world. Um, let's throw them at that. They'll fix that, right? And then not understanding that you actually have to understand building as well before you can build the right solution for it, right? And and yep. so there's there's oh my goodness, there's a lot of learnings in that. But I would generally think that that if we slice it up, okay, so what do you want to look at when you're when you're growing a, a company, you're scaling it is is of course, first realize the the sort of very basic truth that what works when you're 10 people doesn't work when you're 50, what works when you're 50 doesn't work when you're 150, right? And so mm-hmm. you need to have the right processes. Don't over-process because then you'll drown and don't have too little process because then you just have chaos and and, and you go nowhere, right? And yeah. so, so I think like spending some time sort of investing in being in the right place at the right time, as far as your processes go, it's important. Then I think uh, there's culture, right? And and culture is very different when you're 10 people. It's, it, it feels very intimate. Everything is shared by default because everyone's sort of almost part of the same conversation at all times, right? Yeah. And, um, and you need to be so much more intentional around these things as you grow, especially if you if you have a distributed culture like we have, right? Everything mm-hmm. really requires intentionality, and so you have to build built for that, right? You have to make sure that that yeah, you don't meet each other at lunch or at the water cooler. So make sure that you like we use Donut, right? a small you know program in Slack that automatically pairs people to have a virtual coffee to talk about anything right and things like that you do that and you do it every two weeks and so on right because because i think otherwise it's um it's one of those things where you glide apart i think something like having distinct values and talk about how you're living them and so on also becomes really important because otherwise what are we right what is the netlify way of doing things again if you're hiring 10 new people every week and you are uh and you're all scattered all over the, the world and it and it's just like hey try to be nice then you just end up not having a distinct culture and you have 10,000 10, ways of, of doing things, right? And, and, and it ends up with, with uh, environments that don't feel very supportive, often not a very mm-hmm. conclusive, very confusing, right? And not very productive. Right. And so, so I think like there's a lot of things and when we talk about scaling, that's important. And then there's the founders aspect, which is also in the beginning, you do everything. I took out the trash, I, you know, ran our GTM, everything else, right? And at scale, you have to sort of, you come to a point, I did as well, right? Sort of saying, hey, am I really spending time where I'm the largest value add, right? And then you start sort of saying, okay, well, there are things that you've done traditionally, but try to get someone else to do that for them, right? And you have mm-hmm. to entrust them with and delegate real responsibility. Because if you're just trying to do everything by proxy, that's micromanagement. And you're not going to get the best people um to work with you because they won't they won't tolerate that in the long end right it's going to feel yeah. like i'm just an extension of someone's arm right that's not very satisfactory and so so yeah delegation is a real thing fantastic points that you mentioned there i think that's like a perfect summary of the growth challenges from an organizational standpoint 
Another challenge when you grow is, of course, the fundraising part. Oh, yeah. I wonder, you raised a total of $212 million so far from very, you know, well-known VCs and angels from A16Z and angels like the GitHub, Slack, or Figma founders. When it came to the US in the first place, without having a big network, how did you get in touch with these people? How did you convince them to invest in Netlify? Yeah, I mean, so fundraising is, an, is a also part art, part science, right? Um, and um, And I think... First, you have to identify the comfort zones, right? You have to work, understand what they're looking for. What are mm-hmm. they consciously looking for? What, are, what is their unconscious sort of comfort zone? What can you sort of mimic and, 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 and try to fit into? And that, I mean, and understand sort of the challenges of saying, well, most of the funded seed steer, series seed startups that don't make it to series A, uh, the number one reason, at least it was, I'm sure it's the same still for that happening is founder disputes, right? So they want to see yeah. founders where there's a good symbiotic relationship and uh, and they feel like they, they know each other well enough, they have defined responsibility, whatever it might be they're looking for, right? Yeah. I guess so, in your case, that really helped, like that you yeah. already knew each other for years exactly. and you had the complementary skill sets. Exactly, right? But we were also very conscious of who says what, right? It, you know, it felt very organic on purpose because we, we, we trained it, but we were sort of very, who says what in the pitch, right? Um, both playing to our individual skills, but also just yeah, conveying a picture of of, um, of what we were, we wanted to, right? I think that's one part of it. Another part of it is, is um, and we can go into, I mean, I talk a lot about this and I advise a bunch of startups and so on, right? And so this could be a, a, a several episode podcast in itself, Absolutely. right? But uh, so, but just in, in, in highlights, of course, you need to control your narrative. Um, you, like very early on, like, remember that a lot of VCs are bankers at heart, right? And and so like comfort zone for them can very easily be unit economics. So if you have a little bit of revenue, right, then you you often end up that the whole pitch is about that. And what they're buying into is not a successful company. They're buying into the possibility that you might be a unicorn. Like I think that's the traditional Silicon Valley approach, right? They're not risk adverse, right? It's a we call it spray prey mentality. They're, so they'll put in money in a ton of different companies, and then hopefully one of them becomes an Airbnb, and then it makes up for all the other losses, right? And so, so you have to sort of be able to create the possibility of 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 making um, making this into a billion dollar company. And I think like a lot a lot of founders get confused that they think that they have to make it probable, and that just becomes super naive. But no. but they have to make it possible, right? But if you look at early revenue economics and you sort of try to multiply that up to warrant a billion dollar valuation that never works right you're way too early so don't let the conversation go there right that's not what they should be investing in they should be investing in the company and the vision and the possibility of ending up a place where you can get a monetization that would lead to that valuation right but but not 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 because they subtracted from or they extrapolated from the the, the, the existing units, right, uh, of, of economics. So, so I think like that's the thing, like controlling your narrative and and, mm-hmm. and sort of start with the market trend, and then what's that missing, and how do you fit in, and what are your unique insights, and so on. Um, so there's there's a bunch of, of 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 practicing in that and getting advisor feedback and all those things, right? Um, and uh, yeah, understanding their comfort zone, really understanding like how to to put your pitch together. Um, and I think the last thing is just the practical way of going around it. So what Matt and I did was sort of very early on, 
in order to even identify what is this, what is the category, right? Those boundaries were loose, right? They were not set. There was no category, right? So we could have made it right. much more around just the deployment workflow or much more around this this broader. We, we ended up sort of saying, well, everything that goes into supporting this new architecture where the defining part of it is that we're moving off monolith, monolith to a decoupled architecture, right? Like that was, that mm-hmm. was the, the thing, right? And we drew a circle around that. And from that, we sort of identified who are the most influential people in this space that we just it's our space i mean we just created it right doesn't you know and and um some of them were you know founders of github for example tom who sits on our board today as an investor and was an important part of our, our of our early journey uh but others were also like a few of them work with us now right and they could have been you know working in an agency or something i don't have to be a famous founder but they were just very vocal around it and very much sort of saying hey this is the right way to build mm-hmm. And you go about them not to get them as angel investors and so on, but because you want that list of 20, in our case at least, right? You want at least half of them to say what you're building is a good idea. Because if they don't see the value and they're the choir, you should go back to the drawing board. But coming at, it's also easier to get in front of people if you're saying, hey, we see that you're really passionate about this space and you've been such an early you know, mover. We are too. We're building this thing that will help you do this. Would you like to meet around it? Like that's a much better entry than just that random pitch of like, would you give us money? Or like, one one thing I still see is like people ask me randomly for intros. I don't, yeah. Like pitch me first. Like <laughs> intro to what? <laughs> you know, kind of send on an email from someone I don't know, right? And right. Um, um, and so in that we got people that would also they were fortunately excited and they would say, hey, if you're racing, I'd love to be part of it. So let me know. And then the thing is that it doesn't matter if it's 10K or 50 or whatever. It's the size of the check is completely irrelevant. It's The name is, is relevant, but even more so if one or two of those will be your back channel, right? Because a VC, let's say they have a deal flow, I'm just making something up, a thousand a year, and they mm-hmm. say yes to 20. Well, that means that 980 times they're looking for reasons to say no. And they're not the subject matter expert. They might be super established VCs that have a ton of experience in your category or with open source software or whatever, but they don't know your product, right? They don't have your background. If they did, they would build it themselves, right? So, so like, don't overestimate their ability to, to figure out if it's a good idea or not, right? So you use them as back channel, right? And so what it's so powerful for them uh, to be able to reach out to, let's say, established founder or someone that they really trust in the space, right? And someone they know is a subject matter expert and then have them explain why this is the right play, right? I mean, like those kinds of things are extremely important, right? Uh, they can really uh, uh, be what makes the deal. Um, and very often, like in those, I remember in the in the series, see the feedback, the ones that were excited and wanted to invest, they all came back and said like, oh, yeah, we love you guys, right? It was a great pitch and so on. But but what they really got them excited and and believing in this is who else they spoke to that mm-hmm. came back and said, yeah, 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 they're onto something. This is the real thing. Um, so I think like that approach really helped us close the seat relatively quickly. And, um, and then I think, yeah, the last part is probably just what do you build before? We had an MVP, we had users, we had launched uh, Netlify out of private beta, and we raced mm-hmm. nine months after that. We were serving a quarter billion web requests in a two-people company for companies uh, like Sequoia Capital and WeWork. And so we had something. 
And then a, a, a defining moment for us was that uh, Smashing Magazine, which was a big sort of uh, a publication for our target audience of designers mm-hmm. and front end devs and so on. They, I think they published like 200 articles a year. And as far as I remember, um, we had sort of the most traction that year at all for an article we, we talked about, which was, is site generators the next big thing? Site generators being a important part of this, of this early mm-hmm. category. Um, and, um, um, and I think that convinced everyone was saying, holy smoke, right? We didn't even know if we should publish this, if anyone wanted to read it. And all of a sudden it sort of took off like wildfire, right? And, um, and that sort of, I think was a, was a moment where a lot of investors sort of opened their eyes for, oh, this might be a thing we should be investing in. Well, Chris, there's so much value in what you just shared with us. Thank you so much. I like, it's, it's really mind blowing. I think it's going to help a lot of entrepreneurs out there trying to get to their first fundraising round. Now, if you look a bit in the future, you know, you also started investing yourself as an angel investor. Yes. So what have you planned for you personally, but also for Netlify over the next few years? What are your plans and goals? Yes. So uh, I started investing because we're dependent. Netlify's business model is that we're the workflow layer. We don't on purpose build out a database of frameworks of build tools and so on because we want to tie everything together. We don't want to sit on a single vertical as we talked about earlier, but that also makes us deeply dependent on a healthy, maturing ecosystem, right? I mean, no one can use Netlify without using something else, right? We, yeah. you know, you plug in your CMS or your commerce solutions or your built tools, your frameworks and so on. Um, and, and so we were very dependent on having that mature. And today we've, we've really seen it where there was maybe one headless CMS, uh, you know, uh, back when we started, now there's hundreds and hundreds, right? <laughs> and and uh, and so the yeah, this the ecosystem has really grown, but it was important for us to to stay close to that, right, and help push it forward. And so, I think my first angel investment was was already in, in 2017, very small checks, right? But it's just this idea of staying close and 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 pushing the ecosystem forward. And so that's the the vast majority of my angel investments today are in the ecosystem, right? Um, it, we're all on this joint mission, right? This architecture ensures a better web. Um, and I, um, I love that. I mean, it, it's just a logical next step for you, right? In that regard. Exactly, right? Smaller checks. And, and again, you're also looking at why are you doing it? I'm not doing this to diversify my income. I'm doing this because... It's the, it's the right play for, for, for me and for Netlify. Yeah. And so Matt and I were doing that together and we're still doing that. Um, and then um, we next stepped it last year by uh, creating a, a fund where we have a plan of, of, of investing $10 million. And we're doing it where we invest $100,000 into a company. And it's, you know, a Jamstack company, right? Part of this, this new category. And um, we... Um, uh, we don't price around. We don't lead it. We're not there to diversify Netlify's income. Um, so we just come in as an angel with, a, essentially, right, with a hundred thousand dollar check, and then we give a program for free. So it's like Y Combinator, if you know that, right? Like an accelerator. But of course, we're not a full blown accelerator. This is all they do. We are building Netlify as the number one thing, but still, it has mm-hmm. three pillars. And then they take 7% or whatever it is in common shares, right? And, and we don't take anything at all, right? Which is the difference. It's completely free. But uh, it has these three pillars where one is, is um, startup advisory. So mm-hmm. this is around fundraising, scaling early sales, finding early product market fit, all those things where we have industry leaders and leaders in our own company uh, spearheading those sessions. 
The next is workshops, essentially, right? This idea that we take portfolio companies and we pair them with each other, with us and with our partners. And and I think it's it's very important. So once you have, you know, we've seen this in software and web so many years uh, and so many times, over so many years and so, and so many times, right? It goes from centralized to decentralized and back to centralized, right? Mm-hmm. We go decentralized because I was locked in. It was bloated. It was expensive. You know, um, I can't move fast enough, right? Everything's slowing to a halt and so on. And and you get a bunch of of of, of uh, benefits from from this decouplement. You mix and match and use exact tools you want to and so on. But then there's also, well, how does this all work together at scale? I have all these different vendors. Isn't it easy with one solution? And you sort of go full circle. And so what I think is that that as the ecosystem, part of members of the ecosystem that that goes for both Netlify where we are in our maturity uh, and but also these these newer startups is that we we are all selling part of a solution but at scale uh, you know, organizations will buy a full solution, right? So it's not enough mm-hmm. that we have good developer experience and, and so do they and so do another partner, right? It's it's important that we can give the end users developers and their companies a really good sort of cohesive experience as well and so working on these things that's also why we build up netlify graph of having a single endpoint for apis right having them integrate into that and being part of the uh, the the platform but also just sitting down and figuring out like what are the best ways of of how, how what how can we communicate across our different services right in a way that gives as much of a cohesive solution for the end users as possible and so that's something that we spend a bunch of time on and that, of course, also enables the third pillar, which is exposure. As we talked about in the beginning, we have more than two and a half million developers and, and businesses on the platform. And this, this gives them into our integration hub, featured in documentation and our support forum and podcast and events and so on, right? And so, so uh, the, the tighter integration, the, the more possibility we have of showcasing them, right, and, and, and how it works uh, together with, with Netlify for all the companies and, and, and clients and, and, and developers coming and using our platform. So, so the way I like to think of it is, is really sort of a win-win-win. It makes sense mm-hmm. for us, right? We're growing the category and we're making it ever more useful. It makes sense for the startups because they get valuable advice. They get really good integrations and pairings with other different partners. Uh, at least they also get very good knowledge from that, right? And, and figuring out how everyone else is thinking about this, right? And then they get the exposure. It's your own ecosystem and flywheel eventually that will come out of that. Fantastic. So Chris, to wrap up today's episode, I prepared some rapid fire questions for you. So I'm either going to give you a short question or a few different options to choose from, and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Fair enough. Yes. Investor or founder? Uh, Founder. Easy choice. Oh, yeah. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? (laughs) Uh, Six. Denmark or the US? Well, work-wise right now, definitely the US, right? What does money mean to you? Uh, I mean, I live in a place that doesn't have a lot of security in it. So, oh, this is more than one sentence. Damn it. <laughs> it's okay. Go go uh, on. So, so, I mean, like money is, is, is important because, you know, without proving revenue, when you're a growth stage company, you won't get more financing and sort of the, the, the dream stops, right? Uh, and it's also, I live in the most expensive place in the world, right? So you need some money to actually live here, right? Uh, but outside of that, I think the mission is not money. The mission is is building a better web. No. Film or the startup world? 
<laughs> I chose the startup world. Film is a wonderful hobby. So then the last question for you, what is your favorite film, if there's even such a thing? Persona by Ingmar Bergman, 1964, I believe. Perfect. Modernistic masterpiece. You can screen grab any, you can pause anywhere in that film and print a poster and it's going to be magic. It's, it's wow. absolutely fantastic. It's a black and white masterpiece. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it comes highly recommended, but it also works at a, it's, you know, it's an old movie, right? And it, and it, I think the pace of that is very different than what you're used to today. So, sure. uh, but uh, if you, if you give it a chance and if you are interested in, in, in films and, and don't mind sort of a different sort of tempo, then, um, then it's, it's magic. I'm going to have to watch that now. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure interviewing you. Lots of success and all the best for the future. We're really excited to see how your ecosystem develops and grows further than, the, than now. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.